Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Amen. Good morning, Hope Church. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to grab it and open it to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to spend some time in that this morning. And as you do, I want us to think about this idea or this question that every person in the room has been asked at some point in their lives, probably when you were younger. All the kids and Hope Kids across the way have all been asked this question. We spent some time around my dinner table yesterday talking about this question. Here's the question. All kids are asked this at some point in their lives. Here's the question. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Now, I'm sure you answered that question at some point in your life, lives. I don't know if you succeeded in that aspiration of whatever you wanted to be. But for me, there was a consistent, passionate answer for that question my entire childhood. From as young as I can remember to all the way up almost through high school, if somebody asked me, Scott, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would respond and say, it's not what I want to be, it is what I will be, and that is a Dallas Cowboys football player. Now, as you can see, the Lord has given me some limitations in my life to be a Dallas Cowboys football player, but I was passionate about it. I don't care about anything else in life except being a Dallas Cowboys football player. And when I finally came to the realization that I was not going to be a Dallas Cowboys football player, I decided to become a pastor. And here I am today. No, but in high school, I realized that my dream may not be coming true because you have to know about me. When I was in 10th grade, that's a sophomore in high school, I was four foot, 11 inches tall, and 85 pounds. I didn't even go out for the freshman squad because I was feared that I would actually die on the field if I played football for basic high school. So I knew that my dream of being a Dallas Cowboys football player was not going to come true. But to this day, Some of you armchair quarterbacks know where I'm going with this. When I'm sitting there watching the Cowboys, like next Sunday, when they kick off their season against the Carolina Panthers, I'm going to wish I was on that field playing Dallas Cowboys football. I could have made that play better. I could have caught that pass, right? I am in the game. I wish I had the helmet. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. And there's times even to this day where I wish, I wish I would have been able to fulfill my dream of becoming a Cowboy. There was another kid who grew up in the state of Louisiana, a few years younger than me, who was a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan as well. He grew up wanting to be a Dallas Cowboy. That kid would grow up to eventually go to Mississippi State University. And today, that kid's name is Dak Prescott, number four. Now, I'm not here to debate his stats and all that. I'm still trying to figure out that myself, okay? But that's the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. He is not next Sunday sitting on a couch watching the Cowboys play, wishing to be in the game. Listen, he's got the helmet star, the, star with the, the, the helmet with the star on it. He's got the pads. He is in the game. He is running the offense. He is the team leader of the Dallas Cowboys. He's not hoping to be on the Cowboys. He is on the team. 
And for the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Knowing Who You Are. And that's what we've been trying to communicate to our church. If you are a Christian today, you may be sitting on the couch of your faith hoping to get in the action, hoping to be a part of something big. And we've been trying to show you from Ephesians chapter 1 that you have the pads on. You got the helmet on. You are in the game. And we've been looking at some amazing truths from God's word that show you this isn't who you're trying to be. This is who you are. Pastor Vance gave us a statement a couple weeks ago that I just want to have as a refresh. He said this as this identity statement, in Christ. So if you're a Christian, that is you. Now, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how you performed this week as a Christian, if you are a Christian, I am a beloved, accepted child of the Father. And who I am is who I am in him. And last week, I cannot encourage you enough to go online and listen to it if you missed last week. Last week, Pastor Vance really unpacked the the foundation of this entire chapter, which is uh, Ephesians chapter one, verses four through six. He said things like, you are chosen. Now there's a whole lot that goes into that, but here's what we landed on. Before anything was, God set his heart on you if you're a Christian. He chose you, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world, and Pastor Vance said it, but everything that we're talking about this week and next week is all based on that reality that God, before the foundation of the earth, he set his heart on you and he chose you. He goes on to say he adopted us. Adoption is an amazing, amazing thing. You were not a part of God's family. I was not a part of God's family, and he brought us in by his grace. And so we're just gonna continue to look at these amazing things, not of who you hope to be when you grow up, but who you are right now in Christ. So we're gonna read the next few verses of Ephesians chapter one. We're gonna look at verses seven through 10. Here's what God's word says. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. We're going to take these piece by piece and just unpack what does this say for us as believers, who we are. So to do that, I want to give us three more realities in the life of a believer. Three more realities. Again, these aren't maybes. These aren't if you did well this week. These are three realities of you as a Christ follower. So here's the first one. We're going to spend the majority of our time on this one. This really is the foundation of all this passage 7 through 10 that we're talking about. Here's the first thing, the reality that I want us to look at today. We have been redeemed. We have been redeemed. It says there, right there in verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. I wanna unpack this idea of redemption by asking a couple questions. Here's the first one. What is redemption? That's a word we hear in church a lot. That's a word we even use in our society. What is this idea of redemption? Well, the definition of redemption is deliverance by payment of a price deliverance by payment of a price. You have to understand this book, the book of Ephesians, was written by the Apostle Paul. And he was in a situation when he wrote the book of Ephesians, his audience would have been very well acquainted with this idea of redemption. You see the Roman Empire, slavery still exists today, but the Roman Empire had six million slaves. Some say upwards of six million slaves. But slavery looked a little different back then in that if I was a family or friend to a slave, I could actually buy that slave out of slavery. 
I could look at that situation and say, I am going to the slave owner and I'm going to pay a ransom to buy my family or friend out of slavery. I could redeem them. That's what the, that's what the Bible means when it says redeem. So why is this so important? Well, we know the reality of the gospel is that you and I were slaves to sin. The Bible says that we are slaves to sin without Christ. We are slaves to our immorality and our flesh. Jesus, when he was on earth, he was talking to a group of religious leaders. And he was, they were trying to trick him and get him all riled up about, what, about sin and, and sin in the believer's life. And he said this very simply in John chapter 8, verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So sin, you could say, was our slave owner. Apart from Christ, sin is our slave owner. So this idea of redemption, trying to get this on the table this morning, this idea of redemption is us being bought out of that slavery to sin with a price. The Bible says very clearly what that price is. People say, what's the, what's the cost of sin? What's the price of sin? Well, here's it. It says it in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, a verse a lot of us have heard. It says very clearly and simply, for the wages of sin is death. So the Bible just puts some, some pretty heavy stuff on the table. We are slaves to our sin. And the only way to be bought out of that sin, the Bible says in Romans 6, is that we would be redeemed. And what, how do you redeem? The price for that sin is death. The only sufficient payment for sin is death. That's as clear as the Bible can be. Sin is not cheap. Sin is not small. Sin has a great cost. Now, my wife and I have four kids, eight almost nine, seven, four, and three. And we're trying to teach our kids about money right now. Parents of young people, you understand that. They just think it grows on trees, right? I did too. So we're trying to teach them about money, especially our older two. We're giving them allowance and we're teaching them to budget and to give and to save and all that kind of stuff. But they still don't quite understand it when you get on the toy aisle at Target, right? So I make it very clear when we go to toy aisle, I say, guys, we're gonna walk through all the aisles nice and slow and we're gonna window shop and we're not, gonna, we're not gonna buy anything. I want you guys to know right now we're not going to buy anything. They say, okay, dad, we got it. Lo and behold, we get to the Lego aisle. They put, that, they put those things so strategic, right? I mean, kids are just, uh, they're in awe. I'm in awe, honestly. These Legos are unbelievable. I build Legos just as passionately as my son Bryce. And I'm at the Lego aisle and there is a thousand piece Lego that costs like an arm and a leg for these Legos. And Bryce says, dad, I want that. I have to have that. I have to have that. I'll tell him, hey, just buy it with your own money. And I love it. He doesn't have enough money for that. So he looks at me and he goes, well, dad, why don't you just pay for it? That's his answer all the time. And I try to explain to him, listen, that's a great cost. You don't understand what $99 means for a piece of plastic that you put together and eventually you'll lose all the pieces. You don't quite understand $99. Here's the deal. He doesn't understand the cost, so he's not really appreciative of how much it costs. When we understand the cost of our, of our redemption, how God bought us out of our slavery to sin. When you understand the true cost of something, it'll change the way you care about that something. And we've taken, us, we've taken this idea of the cost of sin for granted. We've taken the idea that, and we've, and we've so sanitized this idea of us being bought out of our slavery to sin. John MacArthur, in talking about this idea of redemption, says, sin is man's captor and slave owner, and it demands a price for release. Death is the price that had to be paid for man's redemption from sin. That's this idea of redemption. So 
Verse 7 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul says, In him we have redemption. What is redemption? It's the act of God himself buying us out of our slavery. Don't forget it. It's not just because he's awesome. He is awesome, but it's because we are chosen and adopted and loved. He, in his grace, buys us out of our slavery to sin. So that's the next question. How are we redeemed? We understand that, that what redemption is, but how are we redeemed? The Bible says in that verse, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is very elementary, but those first two words are everything. I don't want to just gloss over that. It clearly says in him. Now, depending on how long you've been following Jesus, we like to, to switch out those two words for a couple other words sometimes. We like to think about it being maybe in my good works or in my performance as a Christian or in my good family or in my good environment or in my good ability to follow Jesus according to everything he says in his word. But I just want to encourage you with a little gospel reminder when you and I become truly aware of our own inadequacy to get to God, it helps us be way more dependent on him every single day. When I look at my own sin in my life, not even just past, but I'm talking present and I know in the future because I still battle with this flesh. When I truly understand the cost and the, and the sin that I have before a holy God, I don't have anything to bring to the table to save myself. I brought nothing to the table to, to buy myself out. This says in him. So this is a two-word reminder that keeps us grounded in the gospel, and we can't just gloss over that. In him, through his blood. Now, to be honest with you, I, I did not grow up in church. I started going to church when I was 16 years old. Um, when I said I didn't grow up in church, I mean I didn't walk into a church building until I was 16. So everything now that we take for granted uh, in church and the language, I mean, you come to church, sometimes it's like a different language. Some of the things people are saying, and, and I was new to this. I, I was 16 years old. I walked into a church for the first time. And uh, so I always like to throw a bone to you out there who maybe have no idea what's happening right now. Honestly, you're a little freaked out. So was I. I'm sitting there in church, and there, people are closing their eyes and lifting their hands and singing to I don't even know who. And, and I didn't understand what was going on. I'm just being transparent with you. But specifically when it comes to this idea of the blood of Jesus, Again, we, we so are so used to it, depending on how long you've been following Jesus, but just try to rem remember, before you knew anything about the gospel or Jesus, my buddy just said, hey, come to church with me, you'll love the music. So I walk into a church, and I got these 16-year-olds on stage, same, same age as me, and they're singing songs like, oh, the blood of Jesus washes me, and I'm just going like, what did they just say? I mean, think about it. I've never even heard about the blood of Jesus, and this guy just said it washed him. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm going over here. I don't know what you are talking about. I am confused. Maybe that's you today. I want to try to explain this idea when it says that in him we have redemption through his blood. I began to follow Jesus when I was 17 years old. I got saved at a summer camp, and I started learning about why the blood of Jesus was so significant. See, in the Old Testament, God had set up a sacrificial system. And this sacrificial system was never meant to cleanse people from their sin, but it was meant to show them that they needed to be cleansed from their sin. 
It was a shadow of what would ultimately come through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, people would bring actual animals, actual sacrifices, uh, bulls and goats and doves, and they would bring them to the priest as an atonement, as a covering for their sin. Again, it was a picture that would eventually come through Jesus that, that your sin needed to be dealt with. Just like we talked about, to redeem, there needs to be death. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about this idea of this was never meant to cleanse people from their sin. It was meant to show them that they needed cleansing. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, it says the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Only Jesus can fulfill this ultimate price for sin. And so I want us to glory in that for just a minute. Because he did that, because we're even talking about the redemption of you by in Jesus' blood, there's a reason you didn't drop your kids off at Hope Kids today, but then also drop all your farm animals off at a pen we have in the back because you had to bring them to be redeemed from your sin. There's a reason you didn't show up bearing the actual animals that we were going to crucify up here for your sin. There's a reason we didn't do that today, and that reason is Jesus paid it all. Jesus did what bulls and goats could never do. Jesus fulfilled the ultimate price for our sin. And again, we've heard that and we take that for granted, but there are people today that are still looking for that sacrifice to be paid. I spent some time with them when I went to Israel. They're at the wall and they are praying to God that he would send the Messiah. We have him, he's here, he died. He gives you redemption through his blood. Hebrews chapter 10, later on in the verses we just read, it says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and he ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again. This is the story of the Old Testament, which can never take away sins. Here's verse 12. This is huge. But our high priest, that's Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. This idea of the blood of Jesus is a very, very big deal. You may be like me when I first started coming to church and when we talk about the blood, it may seem almost grotesque to you. When we sing songs like, oh, the blood, it may seem almost a little weird to you, but the reality is that is the payment that we needed for our sin before a holy God. And we cannot minimize that. See, unfortunately, there's some churches and there's some Christians that are so trying to make the gospel cool especially guys like my age, trying to make the gospel cool that we've taken this massive rebellion against God called sin and we are shrinking it to be a little more bite-sized so that cool kids can come to become Christians. But we're not giving them the gospel. We're giving them a sanitized version of the gospel that makes them realize, wait, you're, you've made my sin so small. Why do I even need a savior? My whole life I've been told I'm awesome. My whole life I've been told you can do it. My whole life I've been told I'm great and now all of a sudden you're telling me I need a savior. I'm not sure I'm convinced. But when you tell people, in love, no, listen, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. People think we're crazy. I've said this before on stage here. People think me and my wife are crazy, but we are very honest with our children about their sin before God. We are very honest. Mom and dad were sinners and are sinners, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have trusted Jesus we are honest and we need to be honest with our churches that no, listen, you are not awesome. You are a rebel before a holy God and you need to be redeemed. The only way the gospel is truly good news, that's what the word gospel means, is if we never lose sight of the bad news. We cannot make it cool enough to just step into this little thing called faith. That's what I like to call fortune cookie faith and that doesn't save anybody. 
That makes people think, I got a good life, I got some Bible verses, but I haven't really understood my sin before a holy God. We must keep the gospel raw and unfiltered. And right here in Ephesians, it's hard to get away from that. It's talking about blood being shed. It's talking about death being done. That's the gruesome but true news. A perfect man was 100% God. He lived a sinless life. He was arrested. He was treated like garbage. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. He was executed in the most violating, public, and shameful way. That is not politically correct. That is not something that's gonna market a whole bunch of bumper stickers. But that is the gospel. Jesus died in your place and in my place. He did that. Not so we can sing some songs about it. He did that because he wanted you back to buy you out of your slavery. We have been redeemed. Second thing we're going to look at today is this idea of we have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. Verse seven continues by saying, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This idea of forgiveness here in this verse is a byproduct of that redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. What does that look like? The forgiveness of our trespasses. This is a word we hear a lot, even in our culture today. You say it a lot, whether or not you believe in Jesus, you talk about being forgiven. I wanna make sure we understand that God's idea of forgiveness is very different than man's idea of forgiveness. You see, my idea of forgiveness, and maybe your idea too, is I'll say I forgive you, but I got that in my back pocket in case I ever need to bring that out. That is not the way God forgives. We could spend all morning looking at some amazing pictures of God's forgiveness in the Bible, but I just wanna give us one for the sake of our time, and it's a powerful one. Look what it says in Micah chapter seven. Micah chapter seven, verses 18 and 19 says, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Look at verse 19. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them in the depths of the ocean. The Bible just said in an awesome, creative way that he will not remember our sins. He will throw them out into the depths of the ocean. Now, I don't know if you've ever lost anything in the ocean or any body of water. This right here is my wedding ring to my wife, Candice. We've been married 10 years this year, and uh, this is the fourth wedding ring that I've had. (laughs) This is a little silicone one I bought on Amazon for 10 bucks because I'm tired of just throwing money in the water. Because I've lost three wedding rings all to different bodies of water, right? You go to grab something, you're surfing, whatever, and it falls off and you go to look for it. And even though you're in like two feet of water, it's gone, right? Like you drop it and it is gone. But Micah here is saying, it's so awesome. He is not saying that God has cast your sins and my sins into the shallows of the ocean. He says very clearly that he threw it into the depths of the ocean, we don't have time to talk about, I mean, the, the ocean is deep, people. I don't know how far you've gone out on, on the Pacific Ocean or any other ocean, but if you keep going, there are some depths that are great, great, great depths. Oceanographers tell us that the, the ocean goes deeper down in the, in the water than anything on this earth goes above the water. So think of the highest mountain peaks and all these amazing mountains. The ocean goes deeper than that underwater. And God here in Micah chapter, chapter 7 is saying he casts our sin into the depths 
of the ocean. God has placed all of our sin. When he says he forgives you, he's not holding it back here waiting to pounce whenever you mess up. God has placed all our sin where it will never surface again. That's redemption. That's forgiveness. Again, this is not who you are becoming if you try hard this week. Redeemed and forgiven, that's not who you're becoming if you check a bunch of lists and I read my Bible and I read a chapter and I read a devotional and I listened to SOS and I got it all done. This is who you are as a believer in Jesus, period. No other thing needed. What I want us to see today is that there are no second-class Christians. And I know a lot of people in here feel like a second or a third or a fourth-class Christian. You look up on the stage and you see Pastor Vance or you see your small group leader or you see your mom who's been following Jesus for X amount of years and you think, one day I'll get there, but right now I'm just kind of a second-class struggling Christian. I don't know if you've ever flown first class. I haven't. I've never flown first class. But I've traveled with somebody who's flown first class. I'm not naming any names. And what they'll say, the airline, they're so nice. They'll say, you know, you're traveling with a first-class customer, so we're going to move your seat up to just outside of first class so that when we deplane, you can get off at the same time. Okay. So I already feel a little awkward when you have to, at least on domestic flights, you have to walk through first class, and they already have their drinks and snacks and a lot of times they'll kind of look at you like you're less than. Maybe it's just me. But I'm just kind of walking through trying to make, not make eye contact. And here's what will happen. You guys know this. If you're like me and you sat on the, you know, row number eight. Um, after they get all their safety things, what they do is they come up and they smile at you. And they close that little curtain. You know what I'm talking about? And that curtain is almost more offensive. I'd rather they close a wall. Because that curtain is like a tiny little piece of fabric. And I can still see their snacks and their drinks. One, one time I tried to go, because I mean, like, I'm here and the bathroom's way back there, so I'm just gonna go through. And I tried to walk through the curtain and it got shut real quick. Please lose the lavatory in the back. Here's what I want us to see, and this is powerful. A lot of you feel right now that you're outside of this imaginary curtain. That one day I'm gonna get to first class Christianity. One day I'm gonna get to where I'm fully redeemed and fully forgiven and I'm not gonna struggle anymore and I'm gonna be perfect like Pastor Vance or I'm gonna be perfect like Charles Spurgeon or I'm gonna be perfect like whoever you fill in the blank with your Christian hero is. I want you to know today, the Bible does not say anything about a curtain. In fact, it actually talked about a curtain. It was a curtain called the veil and when Jesus bore your sin on the cross, he was crucified. And the Bible says, when he says it is finished, the veil that separated God from man in the temple tore from top to bottom. Here's what God said. There's no curtain. There's no second class Christian. There's no levels to this thing. Is there maturity in Christ? Of course. Is there ways you can take steps in your faith? Of course. God is going to, the moment you get saved to the moment you meet him in glory, he is going to change you day by day in process called sanctification. But you do not need to look up at a first class today and hope one day I'll be that redeemed. One day I'll be that forgiven. You are right now in Christ. He goes on to say, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Again, this is so, this is God, if you tear apart the Greek, we don't have time. This is God literally just like pouring it on 
according to the riches of God? Are you serious? God owns everything. There, you can't even like put, you, you can't even put a number to how rich God is. And he is saying, according to the riches of his grace, who is the boss and the owner and the sustainer of all the universe, he is lavishing his grace on you. Not if you do everything right, but because of who you are in Christ. I looked up this word lavish in the dictionary because honestly, I never used that word. I never used the word lavish. And I love the definition, two words, bestowing profusely. He is literally pouring out. I thought about the picture. My, my, my daughter Avery is seven. She's learning to cook like mom. And so she's in the kitchen all the time. And right now her biggest thing is to, to make her own toast, which is very small, but she's into making her own toast. And so she'll put a piece of bread in the toaster oven and then when she gets out, let me tell you what that girl loves. That girl loves her some butter. And so I'll walk out of my room, and my daughter Avery is lavishing some butter. I mean, it's like half a stick. I'm talking the butter, and this is kind of gross, but it's just like dripping off the bread. Here's what I want us to see, because some of you don't feel this right now. That is your life, and the grace of God is literally dripping all over your life. He is lavishing that on you. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. Here's the last thing. We got to move on today. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. The last thing we'll see is we have been given God's perspective. Talks about there in verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. This idea of mystery, I want us to understand, this does not mean something you can't know. Oh, man, God's so mysterious. I can't know the mystery of his will, like it says there in verse 8. No, it says he has given us wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What it means is piece by piece. We talked about this when we did our pages series. Piece by piece, God is revealing the puzzle of all creation. And here's what he's doing. He's giving us that wisdom and insight. He's giving us that perspective in Christ. That's what he's done all throughout history. We read the Old Testament now, and we don't think, wow, what a weird thing with bulls and goats and sacrifices. No, we look at that as a picture of Jesus. That's the mystery that he has revealed throughout time, and then it goes into the future. We one day will meet Jesus, and all things, as it says at the end of this verse, will be summed up in Christ. The mystery of our redemption and our forgiveness is that we have been given an insight. We have been made part of the plan. I love the way uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrased this in the message, paraphrase of the Bible. I want to read verses 8 and 10 in the message. Here's what he says. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in the deepest heaven and everything on planet Earth. Here's what the end of this verse is saying. Because of our redemption, because of our forgiveness, God continues to lavish on that grace. Not only does he give us redemption and forgiveness, but he lets us in on his plan. God lets us in on what he's doing in the world. And so we look at situations and we look at circumstances, not with our tunnel vision of our circumstances, but we look at it with the perspective and the wisdom and insight that God gives us as believers. And we understand God is in control. He's moving. He's working. And I know that one day, no matter how bleak this looks, one day everything's being summed up in Christ and he will rule and reign forever. That's what this verse is saying. He has given us his perspective. Redeemed, forgiven, 
given God's perspective. Again, I want us to see today as we close. This is not who you want to be when you grow up. This is not who you hope to be one day if you can be good enough. Redeemed, forgiven, given wisdom and insight in God's perspective, that is who you are in Christ. We thought it'd be a fitting way to end our services today all all throughout the day by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Before Jesus went to the cross to redeem us from our sin and to make forgiveness possible by dying on the cross, he gave us a practice to his disciples that would eventually be all of us. He gave his church a practice to be carried out in community that celebrates the broken bread, the broken body, and the shed blood of Jesus. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. That's what we're about to do in just a minute. The bread that we will take. Jesus says, take this, eat this in remembrance of me. This is not the actual body of Jesus. This is a symbol, a picture that Jesus's body was broken for us on the cross. He said, take the cup that signifies my blood that we just talked about, that blood that redeemed you. That blood that because it was shed, you were bought out of your slavery to sin. The bread is a symbol to remind us of the broken body. And the blood is a symbol of the blood that he shed. But Paul in 1 Corinthians, he gives us some very particular ways to take the Lord's Supper. And I hope we always just want to make sure we talk about those. We don't want to make this just a ritual or something we do because we're Christians. We want to make sure we do this in a way and in accordance with what the New Testament says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul says, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. That word examine just means to really look at your life, to inspect closely, to reflect. So as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, I just wanna walk us through a couple questions for you to ask. We just heard a lot of gospel stuff. We just heard a lot about your forgiveness and your redemption. And now it's time for us to just take a few moments and to reflect. First, we should examine our relationship with God. Some of you are here today and because of everything you've heard, you maybe recognize I don't have a relationship with God. Listen, Jesus set his heart on you before the foundation of the earth. And today may be the day where you look back five years, six years, seven years, five months, and you begin to tell the story of how you met Jesus, and it started on September 2nd, 2018. Today may be the day for you of salvation. We're gonna have some pastors up here in just a few minutes. I'm gonna be down here. If you say, man, I don't have that. I've never experienced this freedom and this restoration and this forgiveness. I need a relationship with Jesus. We would be overjoyed to walk you through what that looks like in becoming a Jesus follower. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you're a Christian today, ask yourself, is there anything in my life that is hindering my relationship with God? Is there anything in my life that because I'm walking in some things, it's put up some walls in my relationship with God. I'm not experienced the fullness of all I know he has for me. We need to examine our relationship with God. The second thing we learned from God's word that we should examine is our relationships with others. See, the Lord's Supper was never meant to be taken individually. It was never meant to be taken just in a closet by yourself as, as, as a Christian. 
it was given to the community of Jesus followers. It was given to the church. That's why we think it's a big deal that whenever we do this, we all do it together. But Paul wrote this challenge to examine oneself to a church that was divided. The Corinthian church was all kinds of jacked up. They had broken relationships. They would walk into church hating each other, having issues with each other. And Paul was saying, listen, before you approach the table, make yourself right with God, but make yourself right with one another. So you have to ask yourself, is there anything between another Christian and I? We hear testimonies all the time. People literally will leave this setting and they'll go make a phone call. They'll send a text. We've had people walk across the worship center and talk to somebody right here, right now. That's gospel stuff going down. That is God at work. When we hear God's word, we are responding. Maybe you need to do that today. Table hosts, if you would please make your way to the table. We're gonna, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. And how we do it here at, at Hope is what Pastor Vance calls worship chaos. Four things are gonna happen at the same time. I don't want you to be freaked out if you've never been here before and we've done the Lord's Supper. But in just a minute after I pray, four things are about to happen. The first is examination. Maybe you just want to sit there for a minute and spend time with God. Examining your own heart, asking God, is there anything that I need to confess to you? Is there anything that I've been walking in that I know is hindering my relationship with you and the fullness of what you have for me? Unconfessed sin, spiritual burden, broken relationships. Just examine. The second thing that's going to happen is intercession. Like I said, we have a few pastors gonna be down here. I'm gonna be down here in the front. Whatever's going on in your life, listen, if you are not a Christian today, don't come to the table because the Lord's Supper does not save you. It doesn't give you merit. It is literally bread and juice. It is for us as Christians to remember who he is. Don't come to the table. Come to one of us. We wanna talk to you about a relationship with Jesus. You don't need bread and a cup today. You need Jesus. And we wanna introduce you to him. But for you Christians that are here, you wanna pray with some of your pastors. You got things going on in your lives. We understand that. That's why we make this available every single week. We want to pray with the people that God has given us as Hope Church. Let us know how we can pray for you. We would love to put our, lay our hands on you and pray. Third is worship. Through the elements, we are going to worship God. We are going to hold the bread and the cup. We are going to thank him for his broken body and his shed blood for our redemption and forgiveness. And we are going to worship God through the elements. And the fourth is praise. We're gonna sing a couple powerful songs about the cross and what Jesus did for us in our place. And so it would be great when you're done taking the Lord's Supper, let's stand and let's sing like we got something to sing about because we do. So we are going to examine time of examination, a time of intercession, come be prayed for, a time of worship through the elements, and a time of praise as we just thank God for the fact that we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven, and he lets us in on his plan as we continue to follow Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and after I pray, you are free to move and to go get the Lord's Supper. We have four tables around here in the front and two in the back corners. Find the closest one to you. Our table host would love to serve you the Lord's Supper. Jesus, you're good to us today. We thank you for who you are. You are an awesome, good, faithful God who sent your son to die a death that we deserve to die in our place for our sin. You shed your blood to buy us out of our slavery to sin. So God, I pray right now for those who don't know you. I pray right now today would be a day of salvation, that they would understand their need for a savior. They would understand their rebellion before a holy God, but you have not left them to die. You have saved, you, you've, you've made it possible for them to be saved. So God, I pray 
For people that don't know you, I pray for people that know you, that they would come and they would worship you through the elements, that they would examine, that they would be prayed for, that they would praise you for who you are. God, would you just do what you want in this time? We trust you. We love you. We pray that you would move and work and have your way. In Jesus' name.